Hi, I'm Eunice Oladejo, and this is Policy Talks. In this episode, I sit with trade policy economist Sharon Zangang Sun. We discuss Canada's newly released Indo Pacific strategy and its economic implications. Sharon Zangyang Sun is the trade policy economist at the Canada West Foundation in Calgary, Alberta, and a distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation. She specializes in research on international trade policy for China and the Asia Pacific. Ms. Sun is a PhD candidate at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Ms. Sun has a long-standing research interest in China-Canada commercial relations and China's free trade agreement behaviors and effectiveness. Her broader interest focuses on the impact of Asia-Pacific region's FTAs on trade and trade infrastructure. Prior to joining Canada West Foundation, she was an associate researcher with the Center for Trade Policy and Law and an instructor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Thank you so much for being here with us, Sharon, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, IFRS Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. It's really great to have you here today, Sharon. We met at the um, East Asia Strategy Forum when you spoke on a panel about economic regionalism and the role of supply chains and securitization. So starting off, can you tell us more about your work and areas of interest? Sure. Um, I think your introduction uh, covers most of it, um, but essentially um, I'm the trade policy economist um, for Canada West. Um, so I specialize in trade policy. Um, in particular for Canada West, um, I focus on China and Asia Pacific trade policy. So um, when it comes to trade agreements like TPP, um, as well as Chinese trade agreements uh, for my PhD, um, these are the areas that I work uh, quite extensively on. Awesome. Thank you. And so today we'll be talking about uh, Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. So starting off, um, many have termed the strategy as long awaited and long overdue. And it was recently released by Global Affairs Canada um, a little over a week ago. So upon your first glance, what stood out to you and what are your high level thoughts on this strategy? Sure. High level thoughts. Um, I think Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy is a really good and necessary start to increase presence, increase our engagement in the fastest growing economic region in the world, um, especially since trade accounts for 60.9% of Canada's GDP. So we are very uh, heavily reliant on trade with the world. And given that the Indo-Pacific region is the fastest economic growing region, um, it makes sense that we are there. So it's really good to have this strategy as a start to, you know, increase our presence and engagement. 
Uh, in terms of some aspects that stood out to me or that sounded promising, I think the main theme that stood out economically is that there is now support to enhance um, business activities, to enhance support for businesses in the region. Um, so, for example, there's the Canadian Trade Gateway in Southeast Asia that's supposed to be $24.1 million over five years uh, to establish some sort of hub in Southeast Asia. We're still waiting to see how it will be implemented and what it actually will look like. But the main objective is to provide an environment for Canadian business leaders to meet, to leverage strength, to learn, to understand uh, the region. So simultaneous to that, um, there's also the launch of a new series of large-scale Team Canada missions. So I think that shares a similar objective and it's good to have all of these different mechanisms in place working at the same time, working together to, to, um, to enhance business in the region. So that also should probably be mean that there would be more resources or support expected uh, for you know, chambers of commerce, uh, industry associations, um, and existing presence that is there. Um, opening new agricultural office is another example that is really important for Canada, given that 7% um, of Canada's total export in the region is agriculture. And that is, that's been growing to 10.7% during COVID. So these are really important initiatives. Uh, what stood out to me that the strategy doesn't have um, is one, the lack of coordination between federal government and provincial government. So our new report uh, on Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy that is to come out in this week or next week uh, basically discussed this. And the point is that we have five Canadian provinces, Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Ontario and Quebec that have a total of 37 offices with close to 70 staff in the Indo-Pacific region. But the strategy doesn't actually address this coordination between the Canadian federal government and provincial government uh, in terms of in the strategy, but also currently in the region. And the reality is that the provinces are also engaging and are very present in the region and so better coordination uh, is needed to address to further facilitate and promote like a consistent uh, consistent Canadian presence in the region and last but not least we cannot leave the elephant in the room which is China and what is really important about the strategy is that there's no explicit language of decoupling from China. There's emphasis of China's sheer size and, and influence and that it makes cooperation necessary and that China's economy offers significant opportunities for Canadian exporters. So that's really important is that there is no explicit language of decoupling and we are not leaving China. Um, but what is important to note is that there's no actual additional 
or new economic engagements prioritized, no, no new resources allocated for China in the strategy like there is for India, for ASEAN, Japan, Korea, just to name a few. So that means that unless and until we get more specific announcements or until we see concrete implementation plan, Canada's not withdrawing from China, the existing resources present in China is staying, but there will not necessarily be new investment or resources invested in China. Um, aside from maybe uh, increasing our competence and understanding of China in order to quote-unquote engage China with wise, eyes wide open. Um, as a strategy alluded to, which is important. Um, but I would argue that no new resources or no new investments to engage China um, is problematic considering that that is our second largest trading partner. Uh, so from this perspective, I think what the strategy explicitly covers is equally as important as what it does not cover. Um, on China, the strategy has a lot of room for interpretation um, based on what, what it has included, but also on what it did not include. So we'll not, we will not know what it looks like until we see how the government implements the strategy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for those insights, Sharon. And uh, you mentioned some of those uh, specific mechanisms that are within the um, Indo-Pacific strategy. And as a whole, some have viewed the strategy as a surprise and a radical change um, on where Canada has stood with China previously. So for example, for years, Canada was seeking free trade with Beijing. And there have been arguments that because of this, the strategy has considerable influence from the United States. Would you agree with this uh, sentiment? And if so, should Canada continue to look to the U.S. for direction on how to navigate this divide? Or is it time for Canada to adopt a Canada-first approach in relations with China? Um, that's a really good question. So on the, is it a surprise? Well, um, I don't think it's a surprise um, that we are more aligned with the U.S. Uh, the strategy is definitely overdue considering Canada's two-way with the region has been growing at an average of 6.4% over the last 24 years, over the last two decades. Um, I mean, Canada's two-way trade with China has grown at an average of 12% over the last 24 years. So there's been significant growth in the two-way trade. And so there's definitely a need for a strategy uh, given that China uh, and the region come well, China is Canada's second largest uh, partner, and the, given having the region combined uh, is even bigger. So it's definitely overdue. Uh, in terms of uh, what you talk, what you mentioned on alignment with the U.S., I would say that the strategy does put security at the forefront, um, and we've definitely observed an increase in the securitization of trade. But I don't think this is surprising. As I said, um, security now dominates the US and regional agenda. It's the dog that wags the trade tail in the US. Um, the US IP 
IPEF, IPEF, is an add-on to support agendas to contain China's rise. Um, the IPEF, sorry, I should, I'm so used to using abbreviations. The IPEF stands for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. So that is a U.S. initiative uh, for the region to, in, in essence, to contain China's rise. And so we see this U.S. pressure increasingly bleeding over into Canada. All of this influences the federal government's Indo-Pacific strategy for sure. I think men, so I think from this perspective, many expected a new alignment of Canada with the U.S. and Ottawa in particular. Um, but what we didn't know is the extent of how much Canada will align with the U.S. Um, and that is all politics. And now under the strategy, we know more or less in which aspect in terms of AI, in terms of technology, um, 5G that we are aligning with the U.S. And you you mentioned um, that this has been you know long awaited. Why do you think Canada has decided on to move forward with this strategy and why now? Uh, well, I think we've been waiting for this. So it's about time that uh, that we get it. Um, and given the, you know, the recent um, visits uh, by Trudeau with G20, with APEC, uh, with the climate initiatives, um, it's a good timing politically to, to introduce the strategy on what we're planning to do in the region uh, in the next five years. We're going to shift now um, to a topic that has become quite popular over the last few months, and that's French-shoring. So in reference to the Indo-Pacific strategy, Global Affairs Canada says that the central tenet of the strategy is acting in Canada's national interests while defending our values. Prior to the release of the strategy, Minister Jolie previewed it in a speech where she stated that, or she called China an increasingly disruptive global power and expressed Canada's concerns about human rights violations within the nation, freedom of speech in Hong Kong, and threats to the status quo in Taiwan. So do concepts like the Freeland Doctrine or French Shoring align with the direction of the strategy in any way, and why or why not? Um, as I've mentioned uh, previously, I think what is important about the actual strategy is that there is no decoupling and Frenchering language. Um, it is a must, much more realistic approach um, that that even if you try to run away from China, you run into China and China is here to stay. Um, so it, it's good that we recognize this and um, that there is no explicit decoupling language from China and that we are continuing to trade and engage with China. As I also said, the, the strategy does put security at the forefront and we've definitely observed an increase in the securitization of trade. Um, but unless if there are you know new specific announcements or when we see the concrete implementation plan um the point is that that canada is not withdrawing from china and the existing resources that are present in that is that have already been invested in china the existing business in china 
um, the existing offices in China are all here to stay. And actually, the government has indicated in the strategy, even though we haven't actually seen um, concrete uh, money or numbers allocated to this priority, but we've seen that the strategy has given emphasis on the need to increase competency and understanding of China in order to engage China with wise eyed open. And so I think that's really important um, to highlight. Thank you, Sharon. So moving on now to kind of um, back to the G20 summit. So Canada's move away from a strategic long-term partnership with China indicates an important shift in Canada-China relations, which have soured recently. And I don't know if you've seen the um, footage of the confrontation or some have termed it a confrontation between Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau and President Xi at the G20 summit. So where does Canada go from here in terms of its relationship with China? Sure. Um, yes, I definitely have seen the clip. Um, I was told that uh, that clip has been was the most viewed uh, video um, on Twitter. Wow. But <laughs> which is which is not common um, in terms of in terms of. Uh, views on on leaders or politicians, um, but um, I think since the three M's, um, the the Michael and Meng uh, issue, uh, Canada's relations with China have been uh, referred to as all time politically low. So, and even after the return, uh, you know, the return of the the three M's, I don't think. The Canada-China political relations have improved that much. There is not uh, too much proactive uh, engagement, I think, from either side. But economically, aside from the very specific sectors that have experienced difficulties, for example, uh, over the last couple of years, for example, tariffs and non-tariff barriers and canola and soy. Um, uh, for a little bit of time in beef and pork, um, we've seen immediately after you know the disruption of the COVID pandemic on supply chain globally, not just not just for Canada with China. Um, so, d- despite these very specific problems over the last couple of years, our overall two-way trade with China has been increasing. At an average of 12% over the last two decades, as I said. Um, so even when times are good, we trade and our trade is growing. Even when times are bad, we trade and our trade is growing. So, and our two way trade since 2018, uh, when the 3Ms and subsequently the pandemic and so on, um, our trade has still been growing at an average of 5%. So I think that speaks volumes, and I think that's why from this perspective, that while it is important that the current strategy focuses not only on, uh, focuses not on decoupling and not on removing existing resources and presence in China, um, because when times are good, trade is good. When times are bad, trade is still good. But the focus of increasing Canadian competence and understanding 
on China at every level, at the government level, the industry level, the academic level, is so important and crucial, given how big China is in the region, and not just in the region. China is the largest partner, trading partner, and investor in Southeast and Pacific Asia, in North America, in Middle East. And in Africa, so even if you run away from China, you run into China, and that's why increasing Canadian competency on China at every level is important. However, I would like to emphasize that simply and only remaining in dialogue with China is not enough to manage relations with our second largest trading partner and with with the largest partner in the region. Um, and that goes to my bit about, you know, what is not in the strategy is just as important as what is in the strategy.、Um, and the strategy, there's no explicit mentioning of China under the new Team Canada trade missions, like there is explicitly mentioned for India, ASEAN, and so on. There is no increase in visa processing capacities for student permits. Or renewing student permits for China, as there is explicitly identified for India, Pakistan, and the Philippines in the strategy, and so this is concerning, as education is the largest Canadian export to China in 2019,、um, estimated to be 5.7 billion dollars, supporting 57,000 jobs. Right, so. So I think that what is not in the strategy is important in the sense that it signals that Canada is not looking to expand its relations with China. It's looking to remain in dialogue, maintain the current market access, but we're not looking to expand our relations with China. Nor is the government pushing to increase trade within Chinese market. The emphasis in the strategy is to work with businesses to diversify within and beyond China. So, as a growing, as a growing global hegemon, that is the largest. Partner, trader, and investor, as I said, for basically the major part of the world. Even if you run away from China, you run into China. So, without explicit and real investment in time, in resources, at every level on China, Canada will be falling behind our allies, who are also our competitors in China and in the region. So, going off of what you just stated. It has explicitly been stated in the strategy that Canada is hoping to prioritize trade and relations with India, and the strategy hinges heavily on this. And also, Canada is seeking to reestablish itself as a Pacific nation, specifically by increasing engagement in the region through its new partnerships and initiatives, and its plans to grow economic ties with India and Southeast Asia. So, firstly. What paths should Canada take in order to ensure a stronger and more sustained, positive diplomatic or economic relationship with India? On India, I think what applies to China in the strategy should apply to India, and this is not what we've seen in the strategy.、Um, Canada needs to engage India with eyes wide open, as well as you said.、Um, there's issues of human rights, forced labor. SOEs. There's definitely unfair trade practices、um, that exist 
in countries such as India, Philippines, Myanmar. So, and this is not addressed in, in the strategy. So for example, India's tariffs on Canadian peas uh, in 2017 had a similar, if not a worse effect as China's canola ban for Canada. And these issues persist today. They're still not fully addressed today. India also has its own human rights issues, uh, ranking 119th on the Human Freedom Index. And none of these are addressed in the strategy in terms of how Canada aims to approach India to address these issues, like it has in, in, in a sense for China. So, and finally, I think the FTA negotiation stalls, uh, the bilateral negotiation stalls with Indonesia on addressing labor standards also demonstrates the difficulty and the reality in engaging these issues, these progressive issues in the region. So Canada needs to approach India, it needs to approach Southeast Asian nations in an equally realistic and clear-eyed assessment. So how do you think Canada can further cement its status and demonstrate its viability as a valuable partner and a fellow Pacific nation to other Indo-Pacific countries? That's a really good question. So in terms of the current strategy on what else can Canada do, I think um, something that was not really emphasized in the strategy, but was mentioned, um, is using and leveraging existing tools. So the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. So I'll just refer it to as the TPP for short. But essentially, TPP was not really cited in the Indo-Pacific strategy as a essential tool to encourage, to proactively encourage new regional economies to participate. Um, the TPP is essentially, it's considered the gold standard agreement, um, the most comprehensive agreement in the Indo-Pacific region that Canada is a part of. So the TPP gives Canadian businesses everything that the American businesses want, but does not have and will not have. And these are real ratified and implemented tariffs and non-tariff measures. These are high labor and environmental standards with key economies already in the region. So the strategy should definitely prioritize the TPP as a proactive tool to encourage new, new non-members in the region to join, not just working with our existing partners under the TPP, but proactively encourage new members. And we've already seen countries um, showing interest and officially applying. We are in the process of negotiating with the UK. Uh, we have received formal application from China, the largest economy in the region. Why would we not here to see how China can adhere to the so-called gold standard. Um, why should we not be encouraging more countries such as India, Indonesia, and other ASEAN countries to join? 
And on that note, I just wanted to point out that the recent uh, largest regional agreement, RCEP, uh, which is called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, which is the largest regional agreement in the Indo-Pacific that encompasses China, ASEAN, Japan, South Korea, some of the TPP members like New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Vietnam. And many, many criticize that the RCEP is not as comprehensive as the TPP. It's not, um, yeah, so it's not as comprehensive as the TPP. But I just want to point out that A, RCEP is the most comprehensive agreement that some of these partners, such as Indonesia, has ever had. And B, India was supposed to be part of the RCEP and they have they have not joined the RCEP. And so from this perspective, in terms of the difficulty in negotiating an agreement with countries like India and an agreement that is comprehensive, that includes progressive elements, which is the objective of the current government, um, becomes even more difficult. So it's important that we currently are already focusing on India, um, ASEAN, in the sense that we are increasing our presence there, but the reality in terms of the difficulty to engage, to resolve these tariff and non-tariff barrier issues, not to mention the progressive stuff, will be very, very difficult. Um, and so this is the reason why leveraging existing tools, existing agreements that we have is so important in terms of proactively promoting and pushing new members to join. Um, in terms of what else we can do to further our presence there, I think it's important um, that we establish long-term presence, not just a short-term engagement based on the current five-year strategy. We need to be there and we need to be there for the long-term. Uh, one of the things that we could do is to have better federal provincial coordination, as I mentioned, um, on having the same messaging, the same objective, um, and the same promotional presence. We actually need to up our own game in Canada in terms of uh, increasing our infrastructure capacity to actually deliver goods to destination. Um, establishing all these agreements are great, but if we're not able to get what we produce to the market, even if we have zero tariffs, it doesn't matter. Um, and I think the, the strategy addressed some of this uh, in terms of the fund um, in, in helping to establish more, uh, to establish better infrastructure. But I think what is needed is a national infrastructure strategy. And at Canada West, uh, we've recently published a report called From Shovel Ready to Shovel Worthy, The Path to a National Trade Infrastructure Plan for the Next Generation of Economic Growth. So we need to move from being shovel ready to shovel worthy. Um, and so that's really worth reading. And, um, and that's something that is really essential in Canada, such as 
delivering or meeting the food security, the energy security in the region, um, LNG, for example. While critical minerals and hydrogen are our future, LNG is the present. Um, and Canada, Canada needs to focus on how to get that to the market. And the Indo-Pacific strategy um, doesn't actually address this. Thank you for that perspective, uh, Sharon. And I think you provided great insight on what Canada needs to do as well, uh, specifically in relations with India. So kind of off of that, are there any other countries in particular that the IPS does not mention that Canada should be prioritizing? Sure, that's a really good question um, because, you know, diversification is always at the top of the conversation in terms of how do we not have all our eggs in one basket. Um, But I think what is important as a reminder is that Canada is not a huge economy where we have an infinite amount of resources. Um, And so from this perspective, we need to continue to engage with our largest market, such as China, and we need to be there early for markets like India, um, where we are expecting to see huge growth in the next um, 10, 20 years. And so I think it's, it's, I commend the strategy um, for focusing on, you know, the largest markets in the region, especially working with our allies, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, that it's really important. Um, and I think this is a good start in terms of focus. I, as I said, there's actually more that can be done on China. There's more that needs to be done uh, in India. And as the strategy suggests that there's definitely more that needs to be done in Japan and South Korea on the energy security front. Um, And so addressing these issues first will be the utmost importance for the long-term Canadian strategy. Going back to the topic of uh, China specifically, how is China reshaping the regional standards and norms in the Indo-Pacific? And then off of that, what are the implications of China's behavior for the rules-based international order? I don't think the question is necessarily about how China is reshaping the regional standards, um, but rather it is, I think the question should be, what is China's role in the region? Um, And if we look at the region, China is, as I mentioned, the largest trading partner, the largest investor, and the largest aid provider in in the region. So for the countries in the Indo-Pacific region, China is a very real and reliable partner and a very reasonable alternative to the US. When we look at COVID during the COVID pandemic, China is the largest supplier of vaccines and the most active in providing assistance in the region. Um, So yes, there are definitely disputes and issues uh, among the 20 or so countries in the region, such as South China Sea. There's there's 
issues and tensions between India and Pakistan. There are trade disputes, cultural, cultural origin disputes between China and Japan, China and South Korea, between Japan and South, South Korea. But there's also disputes between Canada and the U.S., right? So there's always going to be issues or disputes. But the point is that for Canada, the most effective thing that we can do in the region is to be a reliable supplier and partner by assisting in food security, by assisting in energy security. In food security, we're already doing this. In energy security, we don't have the infrastructure, as I said, to do this. So, uh, so that's something that we need to to further enhance our own capability and our own capacity to supply to the region, um, providing greener solution. Um, and by increasing the coordination between federal and provincial government. And so China's economy has been said to be declining this year um, as it adapts to a strict zero COVID policy. And recently there have been a series of uh, protests that have swept across the nation calling for an easing of lockdown restrictions. So how might domestic turmoil, whether it be economic, political, or social, affect China's relationship building capacity or influence in the region? I don't think the domestic protest or unrest necessarily affect the region or any country outside of China. The COVID zero policy is definitely an increasing challenge uh, for China as it seems to be experiencing an unending COVID loop. Um, but what is concerning for Canada and other countries in the world is how these new COVID waves will A, affect China's economic growth, which in turn affects global economic growth, and B, we should in the short short to medium term be concerned about how the new wave waves may impact global supply chain as we head towards the holiday season. So on the economic growth, um, according to Capital Economics, more than 80 cities are now battling infections in China compared with 50 at the peak of the Omicron wave. So these areas generate half of China's GDP and ships 90% of its exports. So many economists um, in Bloomberg, for example, um, their forecast for 2022 uh, GDP is that it'll be just 3.3%. So if they're expecting China's GDP to grow at 3.3% uh, instead of the Chinese target, which is 5.5, uh, or that the previous, uh, an increase from previous year, the GDP target was 5.5. So, so there's concerns in that uh, in that sense. But that being said, the point here is that China's GDP is still expected to grow. Um, but it's just that COVID may impact how much it grows. Back in 2020, when the world was in the midst of pandemic, China's GDP still grew by 2.2%. Comparing this to Canada, where we declined, our GDP declined by 5.2% and U.S. declined by 3.4%. So I think it still speaks volumes in terms of China's economic capability. Um, 
so so from this front i'm just in terms of the concern on you know china losing momentum i think it speaks volumes in terms of china's economic capabilities however 14% of our imports does come from china and 5% of our export goes to china and so the covid wave impact on supply chain um can be problematic in the short term we may expect some decline in private consumption in china which impacts our export and more importantly we may expect industrial productions to suffer which would impact canadian import and the supply chain problem that we have heard of so often throughout the pandemic and that may be problematic as we enter the holidays with large retail sales expected so what happens now we have the long awaited strategy that outlines um canada's strategic objectives for the next several years and critics have stated that they'll be looking closely to the implementation of the plan. So what can you predict in terms of um you know first steps for the plans or what will you be looking out for as the strategy plays out? Yeah, it's as you said, the next step is for the federal government to figure out how to realistically and effectively implement their plan. So that is going to be something that I will definitely be paying attention to. There's a there's still a lot of details that we actually don't really know. Um the gateway, for example, the the uh strategic gateway, we don't really know what that's going to look like, how many offices there are or how many hubs there are going to be. Um right? So how and also in terms of the strategy, how does the government plan um on measuring their KPIs on measuring their key performance indicator on measuring how well they've done to achieve the outcome or to achieve or to implement or execute their strategy um so these are the things that we will be looking looking into and tracking but at the moment um one what one of the main things that we're concerned of is this there's also a lack of provincial engagement on the strategy in terms of how to implement this across Canada um for each of the provinces so that is also something that we we will be tracking and looking forward to as well our latest report as i mentioned um on Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy we look at how it influences and impacts western Canada So what about the strategy is important for Western Canada? How do we see this will impact Western Canadian trade with the region? So these are some of the things that our report will address and that will be coming out very shortly. Thank you so much uh Sharon for your time. We really appreciate your analysis and your insights on the Indo-Pacific strategy. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. Sharon Zhangyang Sun is a trade policy economist at the Canada West Foundation, distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation, and PhD candidate at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you for tuning in with us today, and we hope you join us next time on Policy Talks.